You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, thanks for downloading the 93rd episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. Last week we looked at the start of the battle for Fort Donelson. At the end of the last show, it was the close of day on Thursday, February 13, 1862. That night, the wind shifted and the temperature dropped once again. A heavy rain that soaked both armies was followed by a snowstorm that lasted all night. A Confederate soldier in the 14th Tennessee later said, quote, Came the turn of Company B to watch the rifle pits at night, and I don't think in all my life I ever spent a more miserable night. It was so extremely cold that our clothes froze stiff upon us, and it was almost impossible to keep the men on watch. They were so worn out that many of them dropped down and slept in the snow and water. Across the way, the Federals fared little better. A soldier from Iowa reported, quote, We could not light fires, for that would draw the fire of the rebel batteries. The boys lay down singly or in couples and covered themselves as best they could with their blankets. I crouched beneath a leaning tree and wrapping my blanket around me and my gun so as to keep the gun as dry as possible. I slept as well as could be expected. End quote. Through that long, cold night, most of the men on both sides suffered from their lack of blankets or overcoats. The Federals had left them behind at Fort Henry or along the line of march, and many of the Confederate units had arrived at Fort Donelson without their baggage. By the morning of Friday, the 14th, the ground was covered with several inches of snow, and the temperature was well below freezing. During the storm, at about midnight, Flag Officer Andrew Foote arrived at Bear Creek Landing on the Cumberland River, several miles below Fort Donelson, with his convoy of Federal gunboats and transports. The transports carried two brigades of infantry to reinforce Brigadier General Ulysses S. Grant's army, while the ironclads St. Louis, Louisville, and Pittsburgh and the timberclads, Conestoga and Tyler, would join the Carondelet, which had already shelled the enemy fort. At his headquarters at the Widow Crisp House, Grant no doubt breathed a sigh of relief when he received word that Foote had finally arrived on the scene. Grant did not relish the thought of mounting an extended siege of Fort Donelson, and so he was hoping the ironclads would be as successful here as they had been over at Fort Henry. Grant planned on meeting with Foote early on the morning of the 14th to ask that as soon as possible the just-arrived gunboats steam upriver and demolish the enemy's water batteries and then run past them to the steamboat landing at Dover to cut the Confederates off completely. 
As the sun came up on a frigid Valentine's Day morning on Friday, February 14, 1862, frozen and exhausted Union and Confederate soldiers shook off the covering of snow that had fallen on them during the night, lit fires on the back sides of the ridge lines, warmed themselves as best they could, and tried to make a little breakfast. At Bear Creek Landing, the newly arrived Federal reinforcements filed off the transports and marched towards Grant's lines several miles away. And back at Fort Henry, Brigadier General Lew Wallace prepared to move out and march east with a couple of regiments which had been garrisoning Henry, but that Grant had ordered to come and join the rest of the army at Fort Donelson. Meanwhile, inside the Confederate lines, the four rebel brigadiers, John B. Floyd, Gideon Pillow, Simon Bolivar Buckner, and Bushrod Johnson, the four officers met in the town of Dover to discuss their options. And just as an aside, but we received a question this past week asking why, if Albert Sidney Johnston didn't go to Fort Donelson, why Johnston didn't send PGT Beauregard to take command of the fort's defense. And the answer is that the idea was brought up, but Beauregard probably, understanding that Donaldson was a lost cause and there was no glory to be won there, Beauregard begged off taking the assignment. Instead, with Grant's victory at Fort Henry having already cracked the Confederate defensive line, Beauregard went off to take command of the western part of the department and to see to the evacuation of Columbus over on the Mississippi River. Then since Albert Sidney Johnston led the retreat from Bowling Green in Nashville, he basically retained command of the eastern part of the department. Beauregard's and Johnston's forces would remain divided until they united and attacked Grant's army at the Battle of Shiloh in April. Right. But to get back to Fort Donelson, the Confederates had about 17,000 men defending two and a half miles of earthworks, with Buckner in command of the right, or northern flank, and Pillow in command of the left, or southern flank. By the morning of the 14th, it was clear to the rebel generals that the enemy was being strongly reinforced, while the arrival of Floyd and the last of the Confederate troops from Clarksville the day before might be all Fort Donelson was likely to get. All four brigadiers agreed time was not on their side, and they had to cut their way out or be trapped. The plan was for Pillow to lead the left wing in an attack on the Federal right and open the roads leading southeast out of Dover so the army could escape and retreat to Nashville. Buckner volunteered to lead the rear guard with his division. Buckner's thoughts can only be imagined, since he didn't even want to be fighting at Fort Donelson, having only gone to the place to retrieve his division, and he certainly had more respect for Ulysses S. Grant, a West Point upperclassman and an old friend from the pre-war army, than he did for Floyd or Pillow. As for what happened next, in his book, The Battle of Fort Donelson, No Terms But Unconditional Surrender, James R. Knight explains, quote, Having decided to break out of Grant's grip, the Confederate troops began to move to their jump-off position, but it went very slowly. It was about 1 p.m. before Pillow's force moved out from its position just south of the town, but after all the preparation, it came to nothing. According to Colonel William F. Baldwin, whose brigade was leading the advance, we had proceeded not more than one-fourth of a mile when General Pillow ordered a countermarch, saying that it was too late in the day to accomplish anything, and we returned to our former position in the lines. 
Other witnesses said that the column was fired upon by federal sharpshooters and that Pillow decided that they had been discovered and so ordered the men back. Whatever the reason, Floyd was livid when he heard what had happened, but by then it truly was too late in the day, and so the breakout was postponed until the next morning. End quote. Meanwhile, just before noon, Lew Wallace arrived at Grant's headquarters. Grant sent the Fort Henry regiments to reinforce Smith's division and then put Wallace in charge of the troops just off the transports. These men were formed into a new 3rd Division, which went into the center of the Union Army's line to fill the mile-wide gap that had existed between Smith's division to the north and McClernand's to the south. So there was the arrival of the Federal reinforcements on the field and the breakout that wasn't by the Confederates, but the main action of the day took place on the Cumberland. Although Foote wasn't pleased to be rushed into action, he had agreed to Grant's request that the Federal gunboats strike at Fort Donelson as soon as possible. And so, after spending all morning readying themselves for the attack, at 2 p.m. the four ironclads and two timberclads slipped their moorings and steamed up river toward the enemy fort. As the Yankee gunboats were about to discover, though, Fort Donelson was not Fort Henry. Whereas Henry's batteries had been situated so close to the river's surface that the floodwaters of the Tennessee had come through the gun embrasures and swamped the fort, Fort Donelson's two water batteries were 50 to 100 feet above the Cumberland River on the side of a hill. That meant the fort's guns had a decided advantage in that they could fire down on the Yankee boats and use that plunging fire to threaten the vulnerable, unarmored upper decks of the ironclads. The Confederates had actually built an upper battery and a lower battery there along the river, with the upper water battery being farther upstream by about a 100 yards. It contained two 32-pound carronades, which were short-range guns that would be useless against the ironclads. But the star of the upper battery was a 6.5-inch rifle gun with a range of almost three miles. The Rebels' other long-range gun was the 10-inch Columbiad, located in the lower water battery. It was on the far left of the line of nine cannon in the battery. The other eight guns there were 32-pound smoothbores. The 6.5-inch rifle and the 10-inch Columbiad were the Rebels' heaviest-hitting, longest-range guns, but both of them had defective carriages. And then the Confederates had been short of trained artillerymen to man all of the guns guarding the river, so the men of several infantry companies were hurriedly put to work drilling on the cannon. Overall, the water batteries were manned by about 300 men. Those men watched as the four Yankee ironclads rounded the bend in the river downstream and steamed into view at about 3 p.m. The ironclads moved into battle formation and line across the river, while the timberclads would stay in the rear and lob shells at long range into the fort. Henry Walk, the commander of the Carondelet, described the beginning of the action, writing, quote, On the 14th, all the hard materials in the vessels, such as chains, lumber, and bags of coal, were laid on the upper decks to protect them from the plunging shots of the enemy. At three o'clock in the afternoon, our fleet advanced to attack the fort, the Louisville being on the west side of the river, the St. Louis, the flag steamer, next, then the Pittsburgh and the Carondelet on the east side of the river. The wooden gunboats were about a thousand yards in the rear. 
When we started in line abreast at moderate speed, the Louisville and Pittsburgh, not keeping up their positions, were hailed from the flag steamer to steam up. At 3.30, when about a mile and a half from the fort, two shots were fired at us, both falling short. When within a mile of the fort, the St. Louis opened fire, and the other ironclads followed, slowly and deliberately at first, but more rapidly as the fleet advanced. Some of our shells went over the fort and almost into the camp beyond. As we drew nearer, the enemy's fire greatly increased in force and effect. We heard the deafening crack of the bursting shells, the crash of the solid shot, and the whizzing of fragments of shell and wood as they sped through the vessel. End quote. The Carondelet would take severe punishment from the rebel guns before finally retiring downriver. Of the 54 sailors killed or wounded in the battle, 33 of them were aboard Walks Carondelet. As the battle on the river began to rage in earnest, with both sides firing continuously, all other activity on the battlefield stopped. Most of the Federal soldiers couldn't see the river, so they tried to follow the action by the sound of the bombardment. The Confederates at the fort, on the other hand, had a great view. One of the spectators was Nathan Bedford Forrest. Awed by the booming of the heavy guns and impressed by the seemingly unstoppable advance of the Yankee ironclads, Forrest turned to Major David C. Kelly, who had been a minister before the war, and said, Parson, for God's sake, pray. Nothing but Almighty God can save that fort. But putting Forrest's agitation aside, in reality, it was the federal gunboats that were taking a pounding. Grant had expected that the ironclads would drive quickly past the Confederate water batteries, smashing them in the process, before steaming up to Dover and cutting off the rebels completely, but it was not to be that easy. For one thing, even at full speed, the gunboats could only advance against the Cumberland's swift current about as fast as a man could walk, so there would be no driving quickly past the fort. And then, despite their inexperience, the rebels manning the guns in the water batteries were more than holding their own in the contest. 24-year-old Captain Bell G. Bidwell of the 30th Tennessee had volunteered his company of infantrymen for temporary duty as artillerymen, and he later recalled, quote, Our gunners were inexperienced, and I knew little of the firing of heavy guns. They, however, did some excellent shooting. The rifled gun was disabled by the ramming of a cartridge while the wire was in the vent, it being left by a careless gunner, and being bent, it could not be got out. But the two center boats were very soon both disabled, the left center, I think, by a ricochet shot entering one of the portholes, which are tolerably large. The right center boat was injured by a ball striking her on top, and also a direct shot in the porthole. When she fell back, the other two flank boats closing in behind them and protecting them from our fire in retreat. I think these two were not seriously injured. Our men all did well. I probably ought not to make any distinction, but will refer to the gallant conduct of John G. Frequa, a private and gunner. At the highest gun in my battery, he stood perfectly straight, calm, cool, and collected. I heard him say, Now, boys, see me take a chimney. The chimney and flag both fell. He threw his cap in the air, shouting to them in defiance, Come on, you cowardly scoundrels, you are not at Fort Henry, were his words to them. Very soon he sent a ball through a porthole and the boat fell back. End quote. 
Foote tried to replicate the tactics that had worked so well at Fort Henry, and he had the ironclads press forward closer and closer to Fort Donelson. But as we've already mentioned, Donelson's batteries were positioned on much higher ground, and so the closer the gunboats came to the fort, the more the Yankees had to elevate their muzzles, overshooting and throwing many shells into the Confederate camps beyond. At the same time, it became easier for the defenders to shoot down on the ironclads. The nearer the Federals got, the more their aim deteriorated while the Confederate shooting grew more accurate. The gunboats continued to press forward to 800 yards, then to within 400 yards of the fort, then even closer. At such short range, the Rebels' 32-pounders were adding greatly to the damage inflicted on the Union ironclads. A 32-pound ball hit the pilot house of Foote's flagship, the St. Louis. The shot cut down the pilot and wounded Foote in the ankle and shoulder. Despite his injuries, Foote was able to take the wheel from the dying pilot, but the shot through the pilot house had also damaged the steering, and so the St. Louis had no choice but to retire downriver. The Louisville had several shots penetrate her armor and rocket through the boat from bow to stern. One round decapitated three sailors and splattered the ironclad's commander, Benjamin Dove, with blood and brains. Another shot, which was possibly friendly fire from the timber-clad Tyler, cut the Louisville's tiller cables, forcing her to retire downstream. That left only the Pittsburgh and the Carondelet in action. That soon changed, though, as the Pittsburgh took two hits in the bow just at the waterline and below the armor. The gunboat was leaking badly, but repair crews got to work and managed to slow the leaks enough for the pumps to take over, but she had to withdraw and was out of the battle. In fact, once the Pittsburgh was safely downstream, she had to tie up against the riverbank since her captain feared she would sink. As the Pittsburgh was retiring, she collided with the Carondelet and broke one of her rudders. Being the last ironclad in action, the Carondelet then received the full attention of the rebel gunners. The Columbiad in the lower battery pounded the Carondelet relentlessly. Fire from the Columbiad tore away large chunks of armor, and the boat's pilot house and funnels were riddled. As the battered Carondelet drifted downriver, her two bow guns fired defiantly until out of range. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. 
Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. While the Carondelet was backing down the river, Walk reported that, quote, new acting gunner John Hall took charge of the starboard bow rifle gun. When he saw a shot coming, he would call out, down, and stoop behind the breech of the gun. At the same instant, the men were to stand away from the bow ports. Our gunners kept up a constant firing while we were falling back, and the warning words, look out, down, were often heard and heeded by nearly all the gun crews. Some young men disregarded the instructions, saying that it was useless to attempt to dodge a cannonball, and they would trust to luck. Look out, down, was again soon heard. It came with a hissing sound. Down went the gunner on his hands as the whizzing shot glanced on the gun, taking off the gunner's cap and the heads of two of the young men who trusted to luck. As the last battered federal ironclad disappeared downriver, a defiant cheer went up from the rebel defenders, ringing from one end of their line to the other, while a dejected silence fell across the Union lines. Foote's boats tied up again downstream at about 5 p.m., so the battle had lasted about two hours, and the Yankees had clearly fared worse in the exchange of fire. Foote estimated that his flotilla had fired about a thousand shells at Fort Donelson, and yet no serious damage was done to the Confederate water batteries, and the defenders suffered no casualties, while the Fort Ironclads had suffered considerably. Foote's flagship, the St. Louis, was hit 59 times, the Louisville, 37, the Carondelet, 26, and the Pittsburgh was struck 20 times. As we mentioned earlier, the Federals counted over 50 casualties, including 11 dead. The repulse of the Navy's gunboats seemed to have dashed Grant's plans for a quick victory at Donelson. As he pondered his next move, the idea of a prolonged siege of the fort was no more appealing to him than it had been before, but the cost of a direct assault against the rebels' fortifications would likely be excessively high. Although Grant now had about 25,000 men on the field, that still didn't give him much of an advantage over the 17,000 well-entrenched defenders. For now, Grant would continue to strengthen his lines and tighten his grip on the enemy fort. Wallace's new division had plugged plugged the hole in the center, and late in the afternoon, a brigade was detached from Smith's division and sent to try and finally fill the gap over by the river on McClernand's right, near Lick Creek. Grant thought that he had done all he could for the time being. In the morning, he would go and consult with Foote and find out how badly the wounded flag officer's flotilla had been hurt. Across the way, even as the Confederate troops were still celebrating the repulse of the Yankee gunboats, the rebel generals were having another council of war. Well, three of them were meeting again. For some reason, Bushrod Johnson wasn't invited to this meeting. The victory over the Federal ironclads notwithstanding, Floyd still believed Grant's army was being reinforced continuously and growing in strength by the hour. He didn't believe the fort's garrison could stand a prolonged siege, so he still favored a breakout. He was mindful of an earlier order from Albert Sidney Johnston, which said, If you lose the fort, bring your troops to Nashville, if possible. If you cannot hold the fort, at least save the army. Pillow favored an attack on the Yankees, but perhaps not an escape. He proposed using his force to hit Grant's right, 
roll it back from the river and onto the Union Center. Buckner could then sally forth and catch the disorganized enemy in the flank and rear. With the Yankees routed, the Confederates could then finish them off or escape at leisure. Buckner spoke next, proposing a modification of Pillow's plan. In fact, Buckner's suggestion was basically the same as the plan that had been called off that afternoon. Pillow would push the enemy back to clear the roads leading southeast out of Dover, the Forge and the Winds Ferry roads. Meanwhile, Simon Bolivar Buckner would shift his division over from the right and act as the rear guard as the rest of the army escaped. Pillow seemed to agree to Buckner's changes, and Floyd authorized an attack at dawn. Bushrod Johnson and the other brigade commanders were then summoned to headquarters to receive their orders, although at least one brigade sent neither its commander nor a representative. Pillow briefed the assembled officers on the plan, but in his book, Where the South Lost the War, an analysis of the Fort Henry-Fort Donelson campaign, Kendall D. Gott writes that, quote, The council of war ended about an hour after midnight, and every officer left with a different impression of what was to transpire. General Pillow believed that his troops would return to their trenches after a victory so complete they could retrieve their equipment at leisure. Buckner thought no one would return to the trenches after the battle commenced. Thus, Buckner's units went into combat encumbered by their equipment and haversacks full of three days' rations. Additionally, some brigade commanders returned to their units and failed to give detailed instructions at all to their subordinate regiments as to their role in the attack. For instance, one brigade sent word to its regiments only to be ready to move at an instant's notice in the morning. Time was running short, too, for the attack was scheduled for 5 a.m., and the brigades were to be on the line by 4.30 in the early morning darkness, end quote. And so the Confederate officers went away with slightly different ideas as to what the plan really was. Unfortunately, Pillow's briefing left out critical details and failed to address the actual process of extracting the garrison, And so, as a consequence, most everyone had either a confused or mistaken idea as to the objectives when they went into battle. And they had only a few hours to prepare, since the breakout was to commence at dawn. But Gott writes that, quote, If the Confederate commanders were confused and full of anxiety, not so the men. The Confederate brigade and regimental commanders returned to the trenches to find the morale of their soldiers high. So far the battle had gone their way. The gunboats had been repulsed, and the direct infantry assaults turned back over the past two days. The men were cold, wet, and bone-weary, but they still had plenty of fight left in them. End quote. We know we said last week that we'd finish with the Fort Henry-Fort Donelson story arc with this show, but that was us being way overly ambitious, and so we'll actually wrap things up with the next episode, if that's okay with y'all. Anyway, that means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, but our recommendation this time is actually a couple of Civil War magazine back issues. Yeah, and that'll be North and South Magazine, Volume 7, Number 2, which was the March 2004 issue, and then Blue and Gray Magazine, Volume 28, Number 4, from 2004. And both those magazines have good articles in them about the Fort Henry, Fort Donelson campaign, and both have really excellent maps in them. 
In fact, the maps themselves are worth getting your hands on the magazines. Anyway, you can find those back issues listed with the rest of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. If you listen to the podcast through iTunes, please consider taking a minute or two to leave us a five-star rating or review the next time you're there. Besides putting a smile on our faces, that'll also help other people discover the podcast on iTunes. Yep, and thanks in, in advance for doing that. And then we also want to thank Barbara P. from Seattle and David F. from Kentucky for their donations this past week. And thanks as always to Spiritwood Music for their permission to use their song, Midnight on the Water, as the music that Rich and I use at the beginning and end of every show. You can find Midnight on the Water and other great songs by Spiritwood Music on iTunes and Amazon.com. You know, it's kind of funny, but we have a bunch of songs by Spiritwood Music on our iPod, and every time Midnight on the Water comes up, I fully expect to hear my voice saying, Hey everyone, welcome to episode so-and-so of our Civil War podcast. Anyway, um, thanks to all of you guys for listening to this episode of the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next time for the conclusion of this exciting story about what all happened at Fort Donelson. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.